1: Brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell
0: for the Better Reading Podcast. Stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Blanche Del Puget, welcome to Better Reading.
2: Thank you very much, Cheryl.
0: I'm really feeling honoured to have you here today. I really am. Um, We have met before a couple of times and I've even got a photo to prove it. Uh, But in my eyes, you've always just uh, been so remarkable in your own right.
2: Well, that's very generous of you. Thank you.
0: I'm going to introduce you, for those people that might not know you, Blanche is an acclaimed author of biographies, novels and essays. Her novels include Monkeys in the Dark, Turtle Beach, Winter in Jerusalem and White Eye. She's also the author of both of the Plantagenet series, which includes The Young Lion, The Lion Rampard, The Lion's Torment and The Lioness Wakes and The Cubs Roar. Is that right?
2: That's correct. Can I just say that the two final ones of the quintet won't be published until next year?
0: Okay, so they're coming. Yep, you can say that. She has won a host of literary prizes, including the Penn Golden Jubilee Award, the Age Novel of the Year Award, the South Australian Premier's Award and the inaugural Australasian Prize for Commonwealth Literature. Is that all?
2: No, there are a few more. (laughs) There are (laughs) a few more.
0: Among writing other works, she is perhaps best known for her work as former Prime Minister Bob Hawke's biographer, having written the best-selling 1982 classic Robert J. Hawke, a biography, which won the New South Wales Premier's Award. Blanche continued Bob's story in Hawke, the Prime Minister, in 2010 and to mark the late Prime Minister's extraordinary life and legacy. Blanche combined the two books for the first time in an updated and revised commemorative edition, Bob Hawke, The Complete Biography, an in-depth look at who Bob was, both on and off the political stage. Um, it's just so remarkable. I mean, the book is a brick, um, but it's beautiful. It's a pres- lovely brick. It's a lovely brick. It is so big, but it's beautiful in it on so many ways, like the presentation, but also uh, that it's got that uh, chapter ribbons. But the photographs are particularly gorgeous. I mean, he has to be the most recognisable person in this country.
2: Yes, yes, yeah. he is, Would yes. Would you say that? Uh, yes, and for years he'd 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 ring up to uh, order a pizza or something or other, and and he'd say it's Bob Hawke, and there'd be a slight scream on the other end of the phone because
0: <laughs> mm, also his voice was very distinctive, it was. wasn't it? Indeed, yeah. yes. Now um, I want to talk about um, about your life together, like when you first met Bob, and what was that like?
2: I first met him in Jakarta in 1970. I was there with my first husband Mm -hmm. and Bob was on his way to uh, Geneva and the the flight stopped in Jakarta and he came to a party that we were at and – he and I sat down and, and talked together for a long while. At that party. At that party, yeah, just the mm. two of us talked. I didn't know who the hell he was. I thought his name was Robin. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Robin oh, called Bob. And uh, the thing that impressed me very much was I, I, I used to, as an embassy wife, I used to take people around the city and, uh Many of them wanted to go and see the, the slums, the kampongs. And I said, Would you like to go to see the kampongs? He said, Certainly not. And I thought, Oh, you're a good man.
0: Yeah, wow. Uh, so you were there um, with your husband and yes. you were living there as
2: ambassadors, yes. is that right? Oh, he wasn't an ambassador. No, no. He was oh. lower down the food chain than that, right. yes.
0: Okay. Um, okay. And what, what would you say your first
2: impression was? Of Bob? Yeah oh he He was uh fascinating, enormously energetic, and enormously competitive. He had a um an injured ankle, and despite that, we went on from that afternoon party into the evening when he played ping pong with a man who played ping pong every single day because he had a ping pong table in his house and Bob played until he won at two a m although he had an injured ankle mm. So, so it so he was just a, a degree of competitiveness that I'd never seen. I thought he was nuts. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and what was he doing at that time? So he would have been part of the ACTU? He'd, just, AC- be- CTU,
2: was He'd just become president of the, the ACTU, ACTU. Yeah. And this was his first trip as president to the International Labour Organization in Geneva.
0: Right. And how old would he be, have he been, around about?
2: Uh, he was 40.
0: 40. Yeah, yes. wow. Incredible. Um, tell me about his intellect, because you know, as we all know, he comes across as your regular, as a regular Australian, and and you know, obviously, there's nothing wrong with that. But there was much more to the man than that,
2: wasn't there? Oh, indeed. He he, mm. he very very intelligent, mm. and a degree of um, I won't say clairvoyance, but he he could sort of see around time, the corner of time. There were instances where... What do you mean? Well, the thing that I, I remember most vividly was so we were just sitting at the kitchen table one night and he suddenly grabbed his head and he said, oh, something terrible's going to happen, something terrible. And I said, what? He said, it, 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 international, it's terrible, it's terrible. And soon after that there was 9-11. And wow. when it happened... Wow. ..he... Uh, He knew that that's what he sort of felt coming. Mm, There were other similar experiences, but that's the most dramatic one. Mm.
0: Okay, so you ran into him in Jakarta and you spent some time chatting with him. Tell me um, when it was that you next met him. When when was it really that you had an interest in him and you decided to write his story? How did that come about?
2: Well, (laughs) the funny thing was... I, I'd become very interested in the trade unions, and I wanted to because I'd written a biography of Sir Richard Kirby, who was the chief judge of conciliation and arbitration, dealt a lot with the unions, and Bob had appeared before him as the union advocate before he became president, and so I wanted to write a biography of the first president of the ACTU, a man who was dead, called Albert Monk. But he's wife and so I wrote to his widow and she wouldn't give me permission. And for the most ridiculous reason, I've got to say, she was actually his second wife and she didn't want anybody to know. And so the book's never been written. He was a most significant Why character. What didn't
0: she want them to know? Oh, you know. Oh, the relationship. Yeah, got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Back
2: yeah. then... Back then people were ashamed of all sorts of ridiculous things. Right, got it. Um, So I was pretty blonde, I guess. I thought, oh, well, I can't write the biography of the first president. Maybe I should try the second one, (laughs) who was Bob Hawke. Who was Bob Hawke. And so I approached him and said, I'd like to write your biography. And did he remember you? Yes. He did? Yes. Yes.
0: Okay. Well, that makes things easier, doesn't it? Um, yes. The fact that you'd met before. Okay. Mm. And so he said yes. Tell me how you go about that because it's such, I think, a big job to write anything, let alone a biography, because you really, um, you know, I mean, you might tell me otherwise, but you do have to get into the head of that person, don't you? We've got to try. You've got to try. Um,
2: Tell me how you go about it. So, well, there are two things. There's the... What the person themselves says, so I did hours and hours of tape recordings for him, which were all in the um, National Library, mm-hmm. and then I talked to everybody I could find who'd known him, particularly when he was young in uh, in his youth in South Australia. So I talked to a lot of the family, and it was there that I unearthed a lot of the family secrets, particularly that his mother had been so averse uh, so opposed to alcohol and had um, brought him up to promise that he would never touch a drop of the de- demon drink in his life. And what better way to turn your uh, son into a drunk?
0: Because <laughs> mm. mm. he battled that for a long time, didn't he?
2: He did. He alcohol, it, was a, it? A, it was a real battle. I've often suspected that the reason his mother was so opposed to it was because there was somebody else in the family and I, I never could discover this who it might have been an uncle or a great uncle or something who who actually was an alcoholic and so he had a genetic predisposition to that
0: and mm. that was uh, and
2: that's very real exactly mm. yeah mm. Mm.
0: okay so you're writing so at the time you first writing about him he's president of the ACTU yes okay um i I mean, not that anyone's ever going to write my biography, but I often wonder whether our perception of ourselves is the same, like my perception of myself and who I think I am, is that the same as what people think of you? Did you, like when you're writing biographies, is there a big, is it a big difference between what you get from, say, the subject to what you get from the people around the subject?
2: Ah uh, yes there's a there's a huge difference uh, and Talk to th- me about that that's interesting wow. <laughs> isn't it It's that whole thing we can't see the back of our own heads <laughs> yeah. mm. So everybody has well y- people used to have and I think most men still do have a very fine opinion of themselves mm. which is not necessarily shared by others mm. Um you know how men gets a certain haircut at the age of 10 and that's it, they never change it, well, mm-hmm. that's because they think they're kind of perfect. Uh, interesting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and
0: did he think that?
2: Of himself? Mm. Uh, yes. Mm. Yes. Uh, but I don't think that was uh, such an un- unusual thing. But it was very interesting to, he- to hear more of his flaws than, were, than he would ever, was aware of. Hmm. or would admit to or acknowledge. Hmm. Uh, But I did put them in to the book.
0: Now, this might be, um, what is it, looking through rose-coloured glasses, thinking back at the time and to think, I mean, I, I can't remember when I first became aware of politics, but I did at a very young age and I've been highly political since. But I wonder... When I think of um, the Hawke days, when I think of the Keating days, well, I, you know, and even John Howard, who you know <clears throat> isn't somebody I like to talk about very much, um, I feel that they had a, a real, genuine sense of hope for a country. They had hope. They had vision. They could affect change. Did you see that in
2: him early on? Oh, 100%, yeah. yes. um, a hundred percent. Yes. A. E. was an, a natural optimist, and but more than that he loved people he loved australians he did he he truly yeah. truly did and he wanted to do he wanted to better their lives he wanted to make uh, to uplift them um, financially and socially and edu- in, in their educations so and he and he did that and he also loved the countryside itself mm-hmm. and he was an environmentalist before it was uh fashionable he he founded landcare in 1989 mm-hmm. which was uh, which and uh, with the ambition of planting a billion trees and the press laughed at that they thought it was a ridiculous idea mm-hmm. but uh, and he'd save the franklin a river from being dammed and he also had he had set up a campaign to save the Antarctic from being mined mm. which which was I uh, do
0: remember all of that yes I, I feel as though um and I don't know how uh, how you feel but I feel that politics today is different in, on so many levels of course but I do think that people are there for their own purpose versus, you know, um, what it was back then? Because I I feel with Bob Hawke particularly, he was really representing the people.
2: Yes, you're quite right. Uh, We have seen a terrible deterioration in the Mm. quality of our politicians across the board Mm. and uh, that also is throughout the democracies, Mm. which is really scary. Mm. So everywhere in the world... You have to say politics is bad, it's terrible in the Middle East, it's pretty awful in most of Europe and uh, Australia. <laughs> Maybe New US. Zealand. though <laughs> no, I'm told by New Zealanders they, they don't like Jacinta. <laughs> like, <laughs> I do. I do. So I want to
0: talk about when, you, when the relationship developed. Tell me how that happened just from a, a, a kind of a romance perspective.
2: I think because I was listening to him talking mm. and... Uh, so it was from the first book? Yes, yes. So thought. so that is... No, it was from before that. It was when I was doing the biography of, of um, Sir Richard Kirby. Right. I interviewed Bob a lot for that. Ah, okay. I'd, I'd read ten years of his wage cases. I mean it was a pile as high as that wall there. Um so I was very familiar with with a lot of his work, and then I was able to listen, just sit and listen. I'm a better listener than I am a talker, um, and I think it developed from that.
0: Mm. Um, I, I certainly could see the appeal. I mean, I thought he was very, very charming. But tell me how difficult that was for you at the time, because it wasn't an easy. Decision, I can imagine, for either of you.
2: Uh, uh, to what do you refer?
0: Well, I mean the public perception, I guess, of uh,
2: uh, well, well, when to we, your
0: relationship. Of yeah. our
2: relationship. Well, uh, the, that came about when he left Ho- Hazel and, and was seen with me. Oh, it was, it was terribly difficult. We were the worst pe- people on earth.
0: Mm.
2: Yes. And, and how
0: did you feel about that?
2: Uh, it was a shock, actually. Yeah. I hadn't realised the um, level of rancour and I'd been very naive in not thinking about how this would affect the public, that they would see it in very personal terms, um, that they'd be fr- – fear is part of the human condition and that this would be frightening, that think, well, if if that can happen to me, it can happen to him or her, it can happen to me mm. and therefore I'll hate them. Mm. Mm.
0: Um, and so you were by then, I mean, you know, and even before then, I guess, you're a professional in your own right. Um, yes. You know, you had been writing for some years. Um, was there anything that you had to compromise on to be the partner of a
2: man like Bob Hawke? Oh well, sure I initially I had to give up writing but I must Why? say well because look <laughs> we we were traveling all the time we right. were setting up a, a business together in Asia we went overseas every 6 weeks um but also I had more or less written myself out by then um my final novel White eye, I think I didn't have another novel in me at the time, mm. so it was time to stop writing and do something else. And um, the something else turned out to be wonderful. Mm. It was constant traveling, it was uh, a, a very exciting, stimulating. I met all sorts of people and situations that I could never have done had I remained a, a writer. It, it just took me into a whole new world.
0: Mm. Mm. And so how long were you together?
2: Well, just uh, uh, 25 years. Mm. Mm. That's
0: a long time.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, And so over those years, so obviously things settled down at some point and you decided to come back to writing.
2: Yes, that's right. Mm. Uh, The business was was going fine. The house was going fine. Everything had sort of calmed down and then I was invited to do – just a little 10,000-word essay by Melbourne University Press. And I thought, oh... Uh, on Bob? No, no. No? On whatever I liked.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Um,
2: and I thought, yes, I could manage that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I, the virus was still there in my system. As soon as I'd written 10,000 words, I, I found that I was yearning to write again. Mm. And so
0: what was it like to live with...
2: A character like Bob Hawke. Tell me about that. He was an extraordinarily indulgent and lovely husband. Totally useless around the house. He d- I don't think he knew where the laundry was. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, he couldn't cook an egg. Mm. Um, he could make a cup of tea. Mm. That was it. Oh, well, that's important. He couldn't make <laughs> coffee. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I guess it was of that generation, wasn't it?
2: It was it was of that generation, and also, of course, for the, all those years he was in the lodge, which was almost nine. It was, was he just nine years. Or well, what? it was eight years and ten months or something. Uh, he had two houses, both of them full of servants. Yeah. Um, didn't have to do a thing, and before that he'd never had to do a thing because he, he really was he was a real workaholic, mm. working terribly hard playing terribly hard too mm. might say mm-hmm.
0: uh, <laughs> did he continue to play as he got older
2: um not once he married me no but,
0: I, I mean, I, in terms of just going out
2: and partying. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. We had we had lots of fun. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I, there's some beautiful photos in the book um, but there's some photos that I remember, some footage of um, you and Bob having breakfast and he seemed to me uh, towards the end to be quite frail. Talk to me about when you started to
2: see a decline in him. It was about three years before he died. Yeah. Um and he had peripheral neuropathy. What is that? It af- affected his feet. So he f- he started to say to me, my feet are dead. And then he started to get a lot of pain. And although they were dead, it sounds odd, they were also very painful. And mm. then he'd get pains in his legs and it went up to his back and so forth. We tried to fix it. It had cortisone injections and made it worse, mm. uh, which was... The, the doctor actually came to me and apologised, um, and then he had two small, little strokes. They're called transient ischemic attacks, I think (TIAs), and and then he had a, a large stroke. I mean, a real stroke, and that left him uh, his the right side of his body very. Week and he and he had to learn to talk again properly. My son made a very good suggestion to him. He said, "Speak like the Queen," because <laughs> up until then he, he was slurring his words. So when he spoke like the Queen, he was able to get his speech back again. And with practice, he was able to get his uh, handwriting back—not oh. completely, but enough to do the cryptic crossword puzzles. Mm,
0: mm. And uh, can you talk about the end days?
2: Oh, sure. And in the book I, I take mm. it right up to his death. You do. Um, well, it, it was lovely really. He mm. was lovely. Mm. He was gorgeous. I was so lucky. Was in, he at home? At home, yes. Mm. He, he used to always say, I'm, not, I'm only leaving here in a box. Mm. And he got his way. Mm. I wanted – I'd already bought an apartment in the city which was getting built and I really hoped he would move in there with me. But as it turned out, he died before it was ready. Well, it was just ready. He could have moved in. Um, but he he loved that house so much. He loved sitting on the balcony, smoking a cigar and doing the cryptic crossword puzzles. So he was frail. He needed a walker and I needed male help in the house at night in case he had a fall. So I used to have a man, I had a whole roster of men who used to sleep in the bedroom next to him uh, and would be ready to leap out of bed. They had a baby monitor. The Mm. poor things, they'd get no sleep. I'd only keep them for three days at a time uh, because they'd be uh, thinking, oh, he's not breathing. Oh, maybe he's dead. Mm. (laughs) Um, But yes, he he was frail, and he needed uh, somebody to come and shower him and wash his hair. And, and did that. he
0: talk to you about how he felt, about reflected on the life that he had?
2: Yes, he said he, he said, "I've done a wonderful. I've had a wonderful life. I've done everything I ever wanted to, and more." and I now want to go, and he really, really seriously wanted to go, Mm. because he could. There was nothing more he could contribute. He, he'd, um, his Mm. body wasn't strong enough. Mm.
0: Mm. And how's it been for you?
2: Well, again, I've been lucky in that I was. I've been so busy. Mm. I didn't, uh, leading up to his death, uh, and then from death onwards, I had to pack up that large house Mm. full of 25 years of stuff. Um, I I ended up giving away lots and lots of things to charity, including I thought it was 2,000 books, but I think it was actually about 5,000 books. Um, Because he was a
0: great reader.
2: Yes, as was I. Mm. Um, And I I gave all his – clothes to charity and so forth. But on, on top of that, there were then all the other things that it was would have been wrong to give to charity or there weren't appropriate charities to which to give them and which I thought were much better auctioned so that people who always, always had wanted a little slice of bob could buy a memento mm-hmm. and that's what happened. And where did you have that auction? Oh, the auction was held in... in um, Paddington.
0: Oh, right. Uh, But it was online. Yes.
2: There there was an open weekend Mm. and people came and looked at stuff Mm. and then it was up on the internet and they could bid either go to the auction and bid or bid online.
0: And did you often, um, as as time went on, did he, I mean, of course he had an opinion about what was happening in the world, Um, did... Uh, was he cranky about it? Was he cranky about the way australian politics was going? had
2: he wasn't cranky he was sad
0: he was sad yeah
2: yeah of course yeah. he 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 thought it was did people going come down. to
0: him for advice?
2: Oh yes, yes, yeah. politicians used to come to him right up until the end asking his advice on things mm-hmm.
0: yeah it's really really missed um Blanche, I can't thank you enough for coming in to speak with us today. Uh, It's it's a fabulous, comprehensive um, biography. It's called The Complete Biography, Bob Hawke. Blanche, thank you so much. Thank you, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This
1: podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.